Well, today uh, we continue this journey through the book of Matthew, and uh, in all the Gospels, we see this last week of Jesus' life, and majority of the Gospels, a, a large percentage of their writing is dedicated to this last week, known throughout church history as as the Passion Week, which actually means suffering in its original context or in this context. And whenever I come to these sorts of passages, my, my fear as a pastor and my fear as just a believer in Jesus is that we will become unmoved by the familiar. And yet there is so much for us here. There is so much to be said and and, and so much transformation that Jesus still has for us. I, I believe that it will probably take us um, probably to around the, the middle of October to finish the last eight chapters of this book. And yet, I believe it to be probably and has the potential to be one of the, the greatest seasons in the life of our church as we dive into the detail and kind of prayerfully pray that Jesus would unveil uh, the curtain of the familiar so that we can once again be moved by it and find immense joy and satisfaction in the person and work of Jesus. We see here in um, Matthew chapter 21, this is one of the only stories that is, is mentioned in every one of the Gospels, and we kind of see all of these different views of this same story. And if you look at the heading of that Bible that is next to you or on your device or on your own Bible, it would often say at the top, the triumphal entry. Jesus, along with thousands of Jews, are slowly making their way. If you remember, if you've been journeying with us, Jesus has come probably from the the topest, uh, the highest point in Judea, in this area, in Galilee, and he has made his way down as he is telling them that he is heading toward Jerusalem, and then he has reached the bottom, and yet now Jerusalem is several thousand feet up in the air, and so he comes down before he must then go up and he along with hundreds uh, thousands of Jews of these pilgrims are heading from all of Galilee all the surrounding regions and are heading toward Jerusalem because it is the Passover celebration this is a a week of Christmas if you want to put it into our kind of terms now Jerusalem with a population that is less than the city of Bowling Green Um, have guesstimations that now during the week of Passover that there are several hundred thousand, if not several million people that have bombarded this small, small city. We have seen over the course of the book of Matthew that on many occasions that Jesus would heal someone, wouldn't he? He he would heal someone or the disciples would, would be given this kind of this idea about who Jesus is from the Holy Spirit. And immediately, Jesus would say things like, men, do not tell anyone. He would give this strict demand that, that 
that do not tell anyone that I've just healed you. Do not tell anyone this truth that has come to you because my time has yet to come. If you remember when Jesus fed the multitude, um, that they quickly wanted to make Jesus their king. And while they were planning on doing this, the Jewish leaders simultaneously also wanted Jesus to be killed. And yet, what does Jesus do? Man, he, he flees. Why? Because his time has not yet come. What he had come to accomplish, it is not his time yet. And so they're excited. Their, their bellies have been filled. They, they're seeing these miracles take place. And they're like, man, this guy, we need to make this Jesus fella our king. And yet every time they get close to snatching Jesus, he disappears. He runs away. He hops in a boat and he flees. Why? Because his time has not yet come. And it's a guesstimation that Jesus was around 33 years of age. Uh, you know, many of us are older than Jesus lived. And so he's experienced 33 Passovers. But there is something peculiar about this Passover. This Passover, this Passover week, was selected before the foundations of the world to be the right time. It was time for Jesus to die. It was time for Jesus to be buried. It was time for Jesus to be resurrected. If we had the time this morning, we could look at all of the Gospels and all their different aspects of looking at the past few days in Jesus' life because some add things, some take away, and it's, it's, they don't contradict each other. They're just, they have a specific purpose, and they're trying to show all the different cuts in the diamond. I wish we had time this morning to look at all of those nuances of Jesus performing miracle after miracle, teaching after teaching, and all this did as Jesus is walking toward Jerusalem was ignite the passion within the crowd even more so, and only made the Jewish leaders that much more angry. This came to a climax. If you have read the Gospel of John, John spends several kind of passages um, talking about this specific miracle that Jesus does. It's the climax as he is heading toward Jerusalem that kind of puts the nail in the coffin. Jesus had this friend, and it was probably his best friend, and his name was Lazarus. Lazarus dies, and he has been dead for four days. The King Jimmy says that he stinketh, right? Um, that this, this brother is dead. He's really dead. Jesus wanted them to know that he was not just, you know, in a coma, in a cave, but that this brother was dead. Jesus arrives at the tomb. He calls Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth, come from the dead. Agere, I think is the Greek. It means to get up, to walk. Jesus does this, the, 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 the tomb begins to shake and, and the disciples, are, or not the disciples, but the crowd who was gathered mourning the death of Lazarus help roll the stone. Then Lazarus comes out like a mummy and they unwrap him as Jesus commands. The Bible tells us that when the Pharisees heard this, they gathered a council and this is what they said. What are we going to do? 
For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So from that day, they made plans to put Jesus to death. They also gave orders in the Gospels that if anybody knew where Jesus was, to come and to tell them so that they could arrest Jesus. Yet what does Jesus do? He knows all things. He is holding all things together. He knows the very hearts and the minds. He knows their plans. And though he would not allow them for 30-something years, you know, Herod could not kill Jesus. And no one else could until his appointed time. Jesus, knowing all this, pursues Jerusalem to complete his mission. As the news of Lazarus being raised from the dead grows more and more pilgrims begin to filter into the narrow pathways and roads getting closer to Jesus as they're going toward the holy city to respond and to worship God Yahweh for the Passover more and more people are hearing about Lazarus have you heard this the prophet Jesus the rabbi Jesus the teacher Jesus raised a man from the dead his friend that was been dead for four days can you believe this so the crowd begins to grow the people begin to grow the the mob begins to just converge on Jesus and we see some really interesting things begin to happen now, I've got to geek out for like one sentence here, all right? But you need to know this because it, it, I think it shows how sovereign God really is. And we're going to talk more about this in the coming weeks, months, really. But you need to get this. Historically, we have named this Palm Sunday. And there's some debate on whether or not that, that is true. See, we need to understand that in Jewish culture, the first of the year does not begin in January. The first of the year begins, depending on the moons and all kinds of sorts of things, begins in like what's called March, March or April, somewhere around there. And on this specific day, according to the law, the 10th of Nisan, which Nisan is equal to March or April, that on the 10th of Nisan, which is the first month of a giving year, that four days before the Passover, that all Jews were to select the lamb for Passover. So on this was like Selection Sunday, all right? This is the draft. It's March Madness. It is time. The celebration is coming. The, the goose is getting hot. You know, mama's based in the turkey. We got to go pick out that sucker. We're having a great feast uh, on four days from now. And so on Selection Sunday, this was Passover Lamb Sunday, the 10th of Nisan. On the 10th day, four days before Passover, all the families go and pick the spotless lamb that they will walk with, befriend, feed, care for, for four days before they kill that sucker and eat him. This, historically, in Judaism, is that day. It is Passover 
selection day and Jesus is coming into the city. Now, the way I say that there's some discrepancy on whether or not this is Palm Sunday or Palm Monday is a Jewish day does not begin with morning. A Jewish day begins the evening before. So like tonight, before dark, that begins Monday in Judaism. Monday for a Jew will end tomorrow night and Tuesday begins, okay? This is the way that they view day. That's why we say the Sabbath for a Jew is, is Friday night to Saturday afternoon, okay? That's how they view, they don't, they, they have dinner, go to sleep before morning comes of the same day. Does that make sense? Good morning, right? We look at 24 hours, 12 to 12. That is not how a Jew looks at a day. Why? Genesis chapter 1. God creates evening, and then there is light. That's the way a Jew celebrates a day, okay? Night before afternoon, and that makes a day. Now, I promise you, it is going to make sense, especially in the coming months. So it may have happened on our Sunday, but it was really probably Monday, a consideration of Monday when this takes place. Now, we got to see that this is all pointing toward the person and work of Jesus, that all of the Old Testament is pointing toward the person and work of, Old Te- uh, of Jesus. If we had time this morning, which I don't, um, we would go to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9 lays out all this mathematical stuff, which I couldn't do anyway. Can't spell, can't add. Whoops, there we go. But if we could take you to Daniel chapter 9 today, and it gives all of these dates and these formulas to talking about a day when the king will come into the city. People way smarter than I have have done all of the math. And guess what it lines up to be? This day. Daniel chapter 9 is fulfilled on the triumphant entry, or whether it's Palm Sunday or Palm Monday, okay? So we see that all of this is now pointing towards Jesus. A few miles from the city, Jesus pauses, the Bible tells us, that he, he sends out two disciples ahead to a small village. Jesus informs the disciples, hey, hey, when you get to this village, I want you to know that there's going to be a mama, we learn from, I'm going to throw all of the gospels here together, that we, there's this, this donkey, and this donkey has a new baby. She has got like a colt that has never been ridden. And when you get there, I want you to go on ahead of us, I want you to Get those animals, and I want you to bring them back to me. And Jesus says, now, if you get there and somebody says, what are you doing? Are you, are you still in my donkey? Then I want you to say to them, I guess Jesus uses the Jedi mind trick or something, because he says, I want you to say to them, the Lord needs it. And they're like, here's my donkey, all right? I mean, and that's essentially what happens. Jesus sends these two disciples. And the thing is, people spend tons of time in commentary, which I think is a waste of time, trying to debate on whether or not Jesus knew these people and he had worked it out beforehand or or what was going on there. Honestly, my belief is is that Jesus sovereignly had that planned. He knew that they would be there, and he knew through his sovereign grace that he could control the wills of those people. So he gets there, and guess what's there? They find two donkeys, a mama 
and a baby donkey who had never been written before. They bring that animal or those animals back to Jesus. Now, why did Jesus need a donkey? Couldn't he just levitate wherever he wanted to go? I mean, the brother can walk on water. Surely, he can make it a couple more miles to Jerusalem. But why did Jesus need a donkey? We're not seeing Jesus ride anything except for he would walk wherever he traveled, probably hundreds of miles in big circles, or he would get onto a boat. Jesus, two miles out from the holy city, decides that he wants to go for a ride on a donkey that has never been ridden. Now, have you ever ridden a donkey that's never been ridden? Have you ever ridden a horse that's never been ridden? All right? Or tried to ride a big dog who had never been ridden and has no purpose of being ridden. Right? This is an untamed animal. And yet this is what Jesus is calling for. All of a sudden, is, is Jesus tired? What is going on here? Remember, one of the major purposes of Matthew writing this letter to begin with is that he's got Jewish friends, family, so on and so forth that do not believe in this Jesus. They do not believe that he is the coming Messiah that is foretold for thousands of years inside the Old Testament. This brother, this is an evangelistic letter. This is the four spiritual laws multiplied by a whole bunch. All right? This is a gospel track. That's what pretty much all of the letters inside of the New Testament are. They're all trying to get non-believers, except for some letters by Paul and, and so on and so forth, but the, the gospels are to present the gospel, the personal work of Jesus, in hopes that these people will be saved. And so we have talked about this over and over inside of Matthew. That one of Matthew's purposes in writing this is he keeps quoting the Old Testament, doesn't he? Over and over and over again, we see Matthew quoting the Old Testament and showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things that they probably had memorized and their mamas had, you know, nice crocheted pictures of hanging up on the adobe walls. Matthew, man, we've got to show, we've got to prove. Thousands of years, are, this is our history, this is our legacy. It's all pointing towards someone. And Matthew is trying to show, once again, it is all pointing toward the person and work of Jesus. One of my favorite passages in the book of 1 Corinthians is by the Apostle Paul in chapter 15. He tells them, he's writing to the church at Corinth, he's like, you know, of utmost importance, the most important thing that I can share with you is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what does he say? And Jesus died, does anybody even know it? According to the scriptures. Jesus was resurrected according to the scriptures. See, brothers and sisters, the scriptures are extremely important to Judaism. Even more so, they should be important to us. And so we kind of see this whole thing that the, the scriptures are the driving force. There are prophecies. There, there is Daniel chapter 9, but also we see specifically that in verses 4 through 5, that Jesus, we're told why Jesus is to ride a donkey. Matthew tells us, doesn't he? Verse 5. Say to the daughter of Zion, the daughter of Zion, that's like the people of God, Zion is Jerusalem. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. What is Matthew showing us? And what is Jesus ultimately doing? 500 years prior to the personal work of Jesus coming, this prophet named Zacharias saying that one day to the holy city, the people of God, the Israelites, the Jews, will begin to cry out to him as he rides into the city 
on a baby donkey that has never been ridden. The Gospel of John tells us, and you don't need to forget this, that even the disciples had no idea what Jesus was doing. And it wasn't until after the resurrection that they understood what Jesus was doing by riding that donkey. So we see that all these things are pointing towards Jesus. As Roman soldiers with their horses and their shields and their, their chariots and their, their flags, probably I just imagine them, because I've seen too many movies, um, kind of walking in this trance together. I think of the, the guys from 300 for some reason. Just they're, they're heading to this holy city. They worship pagan gods. And yes, there's an influx because, you know, the, the, the crowd is coming. So anytime that there is a crowd of people that don't necessarily agree and believe like you do, and you own them, what do you got to do? You've got to send more security. You've got to send more police, more military, to make sure that there isn't a revolt that takes place, that there's not some sort of civil war that takes place. And so as, as Jesus is preparing, as all these hundreds, if not millions of pilgrims, are heading toward Jerusalem simultaneously, the Romans are coming. Headdresses, shields, gold. I imagine Pilate on a large white stallion heading toward the holy city to make sure that nothing bad happens. While this is happening in one gate of the city, Jesus and all of these pilgrims are, are heading into the next, one with all of its extravagance, all of its wealth, all of it is a de declaration of might inside the Romans. Jesus, the one who made those horses, Jesus, the one who made the rocks that were eventually worn down to make the dirt that they ride on, Jesus, the one that knitted together every one of those Roman soldiers in their mother's womb, does not come riding a white horse, does not come trusting chariots, does not come with a militant army of pagan worshipers. Jesus comes riding a donkey, one, a symbol of might, and oppression, the other, a symbol of humility and peace. Jesus riding into the holy city is, is making a bold statement. What have I told you? It's not my time. It's not my time. But in this moment, Jesus is declaring as he is riding into the city, it is my time. He is making a bold, bold statement. If you were a good Jew, you would have heard from the time that you were in children Jewish church and they had Jewish flannel boards to throw up for you to learn the images of the Old Testament maybe Old Testament pop-up Torah books I, I don't know what they had all right but you have heard of of the kings and this historical monumental idea of of their legacy their history means much more to them than our history means to us let's be really honest most of us in here wouldn't pass a fifth grade history test myself included all right. So it, it, it was beginning to spark inside of them. Man, we, we have seen images like this before. We, we know this in our history. It would paint pictures inside of all of those pilgrims of Old Testament heroes and kings and earthly 
warriors. But here's the thing. is unlike those men, Jesus was the true and better king. He was a lasting king. He was a forever king. The Bible tells us here in this passage and other places that, that the people began to load, lay down their cloaks on the animal. Okay? They began to lay their cloaks down over the animal to give Jesus some sort of saddle for him to rest on in comfort. The Bible also tells us they begin to, to lay down their cloaks on the ground for, for Jesus and these two animals to, to walk on. Now, what is the significance of this? We have seen this earlier in 2 Kings chapter 9. When the Jews declared that Jehu was king, the Bible tells us that they begin to do the exact same thing, that they begin to take off their outer garments, their coats, and to lay them on the ground. This was a symbol of submission. This was a symbol of, man, you are in control. We will follow you. You, it is a declaration by them that they are our king. See, a coat, if we were to go to most of our closets today, we have a plethora of coats based on the windshield, how heavy it is, if it's a rain, if it's a wet snow, a dry snow, whatever color, because I like to be matchy-matchy. And so you've got a coat for every day of the year, and you don't, probably even have to wear them twice. But a coat for the Jew was most prized possession. They didn't have grandma's blanket laying at the foot of their beds. They had their coat. It shielded them from the weather. It, it was their blanket at night. And so these people are taking their most prized possessions and they're laying it for an animal to walk on and do other things on. And Jesus, they're laying them down to surrender, to submit, to say, you are our king. As the word of Jesus began to spread, more and more people began to meet Jesus on the road, laying down their cloaks. The Bible tells us that they then begin to, to pick up palm branches and they begin to quote from Isaiah, excuse me, from Psalm chapter 118, verse 26. Hosanna! What does Hosanna mean? Hosanna means save us, deliver us. So this crowds of people, they're yelling out, Hosanna, save us, deliver us now. And it says, um, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, King. Save us, deliver us, King. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The hype about who Jesus is has now reached its climax. Imagine potentially millions of people screaming your name. Screaming my name. Save us. Deliver us. Hosanna, blessed is he who, who comes in the name of the Lord. The Bible tells us that the, the, the entire city is now buzzing with this idea. Have you heard about this? Jesus, he, he walks on water. He commands the, the storms and the waves. He, he has risen a little girl from the dead. He has healed and raised his, his, his best friend from the dead who was dead for days. He, he comes and he spits onto mud and wipes it on dude's eyes. And they, the blind begin to see when he, he touches people, the leprosy falls off. There was this woman, she had an issue of blood for years and years and years. She merely touched the hem of his garment and was saved. It is beginning to spread and spread and spread. 
and spread and more people conversing. They're packing into Jesus as he rides this donkey. Doesn't this sound amazing? I mean, could you imagine being at this pep rally? This one float parade. All right? If Jesus was just throwing out hubba bubba, that would make it even that much better, right? But it is a parade. It's hundreds of thousands of people chanting together, Hosanna, Hosanna, deliver us, waving these big palm branches at Jesus. This sounds absolutely amazing. Could you imagine what it would be like, brothers and sisters, to be counted among the number that day? This is labeled the triumphal entry of Jesus. This is the the historical moment that all of our ancestors have been waiting on. Is is this day. I mean, I don't know about you, but man, I would love for Jesus to come back today. And I think it would be awesome to be counted upon the number who were still here and got to see those clouds open up as Jesus returns. There's something special about this. This is what everything is pointing to. I mean, how many of you grew up in church? In church, he's in here. My entire life, I've never been outside of church. And what have you seen, even in our modern celebrations of Palm Sunday? In some churches I've been involved with, we'll, we'll sing songs that, right? Hosanna, right? And you got somebody singing real good, and they're like, yeah, right? And everybody's like, right? We can't follow you, but you sound good, Right? So what happens on Palm Sunday, the week before Easter, in most of our modern celebrations? But we spend a bazillion dollars getting some palm leaves from someplace, right? We pass them out, and we sing Hosanna songs, and you'll see people, I mean, white people who have never raised their hand at anything, you put a branch of weed in their hand, and it's Palm Sunday, They're waving these, Hosanna, save us, deliver us, waving, singing. Someone, you know, if you're really lucky, if somebody attends your church that owns a donkey, they even get to ride in on it, dressed like Jesus. I've seen all these things. All right? It's time. And and please hear me, I I don't think that there's anything necessarily wrong with that. It's time. Jesus has come. You know, I contemplated finding some weeds to pass out this morning. Hosanna. Hosanna, deliver us, save us. Man, what a day. What an opportunity. To see that. How does Jesus respond? How does he respond? I know how to respond. Right? Be like, Booyah! I'm here! How are you doing? How you doing over here? Right? That's how I'd be responding this this affirmation of of worship as people are are crying out to me. And yet, how does Jesus respond to this passage? Now, we've got to go to another book here. Flip over to the Gospel of Luke. Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. Come back to Matthew. Luke's showing another piece of the cut diamond here of Jesus. So all this is going on. This craziness is happening 
All this stuff is happening for two miles. Jesus is experiencing this, just screaming, deliver us, deliver us, deliver us, deliver us. How does Jesus respond? Chapter 19, verse 41. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and, and, and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Because you do not know the time of your visitation. Mark will tell us in 11.11 that once Jesus gets there, that he enters Jerusalem, he goes into the temple, the Bible tells us, and then Jesus just looks around at everything, and then he leaves and goes back home because it's getting late. All this buildup, all of this praise, all of this singing, all of this yelling, and yet what does the Bible tell us? How does Jesus respond? The Bible tells us that Jesus begins to weep. That, that term weep there in the Greek, pa Greek paints this, this picture, and, and I've, I've been there, this, this groaning in your, in your grief that, that causes you to, to be, it, it feels like it's from, as the Bible would say, like from your bowels. It's, it's from the gut of despair. It's, it's what the, the psalmist or, or some of the scripture that we'd see in the Old Testament, they would say like in the, in the miry clay. Like there's this, groaning, which is Jesus. This isn't Jesus going, thank you. This would have been a physical, hung over the donkey, Jesus looking at the city, weeping, ugly crying over these folks, over these people. Jesus is groaning in grief, and when he shows up to the city, he, he doesn't go to the Roman government. But where does Jesus go? He goes to the temple. The Bible tells us he, he kind of scouts everything out, turns around, and leaves. He leaves. The flipping over the table doesn't happen to the next day. Why does he weep? Why does he go to the temple and leave? All this buildup, all this celebration. And he, he ugly cries on an animal, weeping over a city. Looks around, turns, and heads back two miles, back to Bethany, the home of Lazarus. As a person who loves good writing and great movies, is there anything more anticlimactic than this? It, it would be as people, them selling tickets to the Super Bowl. 
filling the stadium. Oh, we, we're just joking. It's not going to happen. Today's not the day. I mean, can we get any more anticlimactic? What, what, is, what is taking place here? Palm branches, cloaks, we surrender, we submit, save us, deliver us. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Why does Jesus respond this way? Jesus begins to weep. Jesus begins to mourn. Why? Over all of those people, spiritual blindness. He begins to weep over their unbelief. He begins to, to know that their unbelief will ultimately lead to their physical destruction. Jesus, when he tells us there in the book of, of Luke, he's saying that, and this happened in 70 AD, the, the Romans come and totally demolish the holy city. Jesus is saying they're spiritually blind. He's saying, man, their unbelief that will lead to the physical destruction of the city. And not only that, we get this awful, terrible picture on Mother's Day of mamas carrying babies and then being killed. But Jesus was more concerned about something else. Jesus was more concerned about these people's spiritual condition. John tells us that the crowd has gathered for Jesus because they'd heard that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. See, this, this was not the first time that the Jews on their celebration days have shouted Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This was not a first time experience for these Jews. This was the common statement they would often quote it in conquering leaders or toward their conquering leaders when, when, when they were being released from the oppression of a foreign power. Only 200 years earlier in Jewish history, the, the Jews overthrew the Syrians and entered Jerusalem with praise and the waving of palm branches. After, the Jews, after this experience, the Jews even minted a coin for a season. And guess what was the symbol on it? A palm branch. A palm branch. The palm branch was to, to symbolize victory over their foes. And yet, though they would probably, even this week I watched uh, Jews in Israel who do not believe in Jesus in 2014 walking around with palm branches, and guess what they were saying? Hosanna. This was a part of their culture. This, this was a part of their, their celebration. And yet, for hundreds of years, they had just had no one to point it toward. But now, Jesus is here. Jesus is here. They believe that Jesus was the conquering king, that he was the, the military, the Rambo has come to deliver our city from the hands of those 
pagan, nasty, Gentile Romans who have been oppressing us and, and plus putting us into slavery. And we believe that Jesus is about to do this for us. They're waving palm branches as they have done historically as, as a symbol of nationalism and victory over their enemies. The crowd has become a mob. They're looking for a military conquering warrior who will free them from the Romans and set up an earthly kingdom. They're screaming, Hosanna, save us, deliver us. But brothers and sisters, these Jews in this moment are not saying Hosanna when we say, Lord Jesus, save us. That is not what they are saying here. They are saying, not save us from an eternity. Not to save us from sin, Satan, and death. When they are screaming, Hosanna, save us, they are talking about a physical salvation from the, the oppression of the Romans. Do you see the difference? Do you see what is taking place here? They're not asking Jesus to save them from their sin. They're not asking Jesus to reconcile them to their God. No, they want relief from their current situation. They simply did not get who Jesus was. They were blind. And God, as he has always done, has always used people's sin, even, to accomplish his eternal plan. That's hard for us to get. Jesus is using the crowd's sin. Did you hear me? These people are sinning. And yet God is, is using it. He's, he's using it. They're blind. Jesus using their blindness to accomplish his mission. They, they will turn from him. We don't know if it's the exact same crowd, but we know by the end of the week, and preachers like to really preach this, this the crowd that said Hosanna on Sunday. It's the same crowd that says crucify him on Friday. Well, we don't know that. It's possible. But they have done something by the end of the week. They've all abandoned him. Their unbelief must have turned to rage. And all of this was to fulfill God's plan. It was time. Jesus must be rejected by everyone. Jesus must be crucified. Those Pharisees did not want to crucify Jesus on the, the Passover. But Jesus is going to use whatever means necessary. This was the plan. In the midst of their war cries, Jesus comes humbly. And what's a donkey a symbol of in Judaism? It was a symbol of peace. They're yelling war. And Jesus is illustrating peace. They're screaming, save us, get rid of them. You're so powerful, we don't have to take up arms. You're the magic man. 
I mean, how do you beat a guy who, if you're in a battle and, and I'm fighting with Adam and, and Adam gets killed, that I can look down at Adam and, you know, bippity-boppity-boo, and all of a sudden Adam gets back up and he can fight some more. That's what they're believing in Jesus. That's what they're thinking. They're screaming war cries, and Jesus is riding a physical animal. He's not riding the stallion. He's, he's riding a donkey. Why? Because these people need to be saved. But something greater than Caesar, something greater than the Roman armies, they, they need to be saved from God himself. And Jesus knows that this is his Mission, the only one who can appease God is God. The only one who can make peace with God over humanity's spiritual bankruptcy is Jesus. See, the temptation is to create and worship a Jesus of our own. How does he respond when Jesus... <clears throat> excuse me, how, how do we respond and how did they respond when Jesus didn't meet their expectations? This can't be right. We see this transformation in Judas. We're going to see this over the course of the week. They keep giving Jesus chances like, oh, is this the time, Jesus? Oh, is this the time, Jesus? And Jesus keeps, he refuses to meet a Jesus and a God and a Messiah of their own creation. How many times, brothers and sisters, so maybe you have said this, you talk to a friend, a family member, who will say that they have lost faith because something bad has happened to them. Or because Jesus didn't do it exactly the way that they thought he should do it. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know that is no faith at all. See, we will see the shifting in the crowd all week long as Jesus goes from mil potentially millions around him to him and two thieves. Jesus, knowing all this, Jesus stays the course. Brothers and sisters, I don't want to tell you what to write in your Bibles, but I write mine, and I think the triumphal entry is a terrible name. If anything, this is a story of false worship of the real king. Do you get that this morning? They didn't know the Jesus on the donkey. Let me ask you some questions in closing. Do you have the right words on your lips, but they have not been made flesh in your heart? Why do I ask you that? Do we, what are they quoting here? Scripture. What are they saying to Jesus? We surrender. We submit. We lay down our everything before you. You are God. You are king. Or they didn't really say God there, but 
you're the king. You're the Messiah. But they had no concept of really their <clears throat> eternal, their, 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 their massive chasm between them and God. And for the reason why Jesus came in the first place. They wanted their bellies to be filled. They wanted the magic man to, to heal them of their affirmities. They, 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 they wanted their, their city back. They wanted a Jewish king. They wanted their nations. They wanted the promised land. They want all of this. They, they had the right praise and worship songs on their lips. But the praise and worship is not an overflowing of the praise and worship of their hearts. We like to use this term in Christianity that we make a profession of faith. These people had a profession of faith. But they had no profession of heart. Brothers and sisters, they had the right verbiage. Wrong heart. They did not understand the terms. They did not understand the person. So it leads us to ask the question on Passover Lamb Selection Sunday. Do you know the Lamb? Not do you know about the Lamb? You know the Lamb. Does the Lamb know you? Do you know the biblical Jesus? Or do you know an American one? Do you know that Jesus? The, the weeping Jesus who's... And you guys, get this picture. All of these people are screaming His name, saying biblical things, and Jesus is weeping because He knows it is merely lip service. So He weeps. When's the last time that you or I have weeped over our unbelief? When's the last time that you have drove down Scottsford Road? Weeping. Not because you've got to get there in a hurry. And it's Scottsford Road on Friday about 5 o'clock. And you're crying. When's the last time that you have gone to Hospital Hill and, or the top of Helm Craven's library on the ninth floor? Looked across our city and wept. When's the last time that you've watched the news and you've, you've wept over as Mark Phillips, our missionary here, we're going to visit here in about a month, as he put out this week that there was this, this bombing of this terrorist, I think it was ISIS thing, bombed someplace in the town where Mark and Parker used to live for three years. When's the last time that we've wept over something that was happening on foreign soil? Because of unbelief. Don't get this this day. Please get this this day. We can have all the right answers. We can intellectually ascend. We can, we can quote Bible verses and have Christian books on, our, on our, our bookshelves and follow all of these things. 
and miss the lamb. The hardest people to reach in the world are people who are completely convinced that they have Jesus. But he doesn't have them. Who is this Jesus? If you claim to be a believer today, what has Jesus saved you from? And is that worthy of praise? Or have you become disillusioned with the familiar? I believe we've missed this text in a lot of arenas. We've tried to make it just some party. But it's a party where our Lord wept. And my heartbeat as one of your pastors, as a member of Mission Church, is that we will once again, that God would impress upon us, that one, we would weep over the unbelief of our hearts. And two, as Leonard Sweet once told me, I was sitting in his office on an island at his house. I was talking to him about wanting a church plant. And he asked me this question in that Leonard Sweet kind of Captain Nemo looking way, if you can Google Leonard Sweet later. And he looked at me and said, Eric, what city do you weep over? Because you should never plant in a place that you don't weep over. And I've never forgotten that. And here we are. Weep over your unbelief. Weep over the unbelief of Bible Belt Christianity that claims to have a power, claims to have an idea, but it denies the power, the Scripture says. A city where most people this morning are, I don't know what they do on Sunday morning because I've never had that opportunity, chilling, hanging out, sleeping in right here in Bowling Green. May we be a people that weeps over our unbelief in our hearts. May we be a people that weeps over the city. Because what do we know? The rest of the story. The rest of it. Let's pray.